Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month to get access to premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts and blogs and other goodies. Um, would really appreciate your support, but if you can't support the show financially, it's totally awesome. It's a free podcast. You can support the show also by leaving a review either on your Apple app or on Spotify. That really helps um, alert people to the show, or you can share this episode if you enjoy it or other episodes that you have enjoyed or hated. Uh, you can share those episodes on your social media platforms. And that really, again, does help get the word out on Theology in the Raw. My guest today is the one and only Deborah Hirsch. Um, Deborah, Deborah, Deb, I think she prefers Deb. Deb Hirsch is a speaker, church leader, and a writer. She's written a couple books, um, Untamed, Reactivating a Missional Forum of Discipleship, Form of Discipleship, and which she co-wrote with her husband, Alan Hirsch. And then uh, her first book, book was Redeeming Sex, which is a fantastic book on sexuality uh, where she kind of weaves in her own journey. Uh, Deb is a uh, wonderful conversationalist conversation partner um, has her and her husband, Alan have just done so much um, multifaceted work for the kingdom. And I was really excited to talk to her. We talk about some interesting topics like marijuana, psychedelics and um, her own journey and the church and all that fun stuff. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Deb Hirsch. All right. Hey friends, I'm here with Deb Hirsch. Deb, this podcast is long overdue. I've been wanting to have you on for many, many uh, years, really. So thanks so much for carving up time to be on Theology in a Row. Oh, it's great to be here. Finally, we I was expecting uh, black lipstick. I was just reading the account <laughs> when you were in the in the bathroom somewhere putting on your black lipstick, and you said, "Yeah, oh, God. Not- I'm, I'm a little bit old for black lipstick. In fact, I don't even wear lipstick anymore. I don't even wear makeup. <laughs> uh, but black's still my color. I still wear a lot of black clothing. So there you go. Okay, yeah, I do too. I like black. Well, yeah, I love black. It's such a just a neutral, easy color. Um, you, I, you know, I, offline, I, I said that you and your husband Alan are kind of like the Priscilla and Aquila of Christianity. You guys seem to be every time I turn around, you're doing something different. You're in a different city, speaking here, speaking there, right in this book, addressing that topic. So, um, wh- why don't we start? Well, let's just go all the way back. Just tell us a quick snapshot of your journey, uh, where you grew up, um, how you met Jesus, and what you've been doing the last yeah. several decades. Last several decades, there's been a few in between. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, look, really, simply said, my story is, it's really a story I like to tell people, um, if they're not aware of the concept of provenient grace, and it's a really powerful uh, concept. Um, And and that is my story, really. It's a story of provenient grace. For those that don't know, um, if you're a Wesleyan, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's really a, a thing about it's. It's really like a preparatory grace, and John Wesley built his so much of his missionary movement on this this uh, this concept alone that God is at work in all people. Doesn't matter where they are, what's going on in their lives, God is already at work in them, preparing them, and he by his Holy Spirit wooing them, mm-hmm. trying to catch their attention. Um, and I love that. I love that because I think, you know, in the church we have a lot of odd scripting that takes place <laughs> <laughs> that we have to kind of unscript ourselves 
and re-script really. And I think this is one of them because we often have that thought that wherever we go, we bring God with us in our back pocket, hmm. you know, and when the time's right, when it's, you know, the right time, we hand him over <laughs> and uh, with our proclamation and here, here's God here to answer all your questions. And and I think um, prevenient grace helps us understand that actually God is already at work. Hmm. God is already there. We don't roll up to anybody um, and hand him over. He's already at work there, and the the job of a missionary really is to be to see where God is at work within mm-hmm. the individual, um, and then help. You know, it, it, I mean, it's it's definitely my story. So you know, my story was, um, you know, many years ago now. Uh, you know, I was just one of those angst-ridden people that were, you know, dealing with all that kind of existential stuff that kind of bubbles away now. In, I say in the pit of my belly because I feel things deeply within my belly and um, just trying to work out what life was all about. Um, there was a bunch of us that hung around together and we'd kind of get stoned and look at the sky and, you know, get into our philosophizing and, you know, what are we doing here and what's what does it mean? Is there any purpose, you know, grander purpose? Is there anything beyond us and all that kind of stuff. And, um so I was on that journey. At the uh, while I was on that journey, I was very, very immersed in the LGBTQ community at that season of my life. Um, and we had friends that were in a band, and we used to go and hang around with them as well. And um, but you know, probably too much drug taking was was uh, <laughs> happening in my life at that time. But I had a sense, I had a sense that I was getting close to my answer. I didn't know what that meant, but I just had this this thing going on in my deep within, thinking I'm getting close. And um, I remember my my dear friend Jason sitting me down one day, and he said to me, "I said to, we were talking, and I said to him, Jason, I think I'm getting close to the answer." And he said, "Debbie, I think you're taking too many drugs." <laughs> now I may well have been, um, and I do have to pause there and say that I know this is not kind of orthodox and all the rest of it, but but drugs certainly you know, opened me up to the spiritual realm in a way that I wasn't prior to that. And God used my drug taking, as he did with my husband as well. My husband also um, was very involved in in taking drugs and and seeking for answers to life and all the rest of it. Um, So God certainly used that in my life to to bring me to himself. But, um, yeah, so... uh, I remember thinking I probably am taking too many drugs, but I had this weird sense that something was just just beyond. And um, in the meantime, and the parallel story here is in the meantime, a dear friend of ours, George, who happened also to be uh, one of our drug dealers, um, we had heard, we'd lost contact with him. He was part of the band that we used to hang out with and we sort of weren't, ha- you know, hanging around with them as much. And we had heard on the grapevine, that George and his brother John uh, had had found God. Now, we didn't know what that meant. We didn't know what God or how they found God. We just heard that they found God. And I remember thinking, I'm really happy for them. They've found what they've been looking for. Never once did I think for a moment that what they were had found was what I was feeling I was finding. Anyway, long story short, we... They had, <laughs> this is literally what they did. So this is George's story, and, and you see that in my book anyway. Mm. He he gets um, 
he has a local police come around to his house, uh, knocks on his door one night to take him out to go to the local lockup. He went there for 10 days, not for drug dealing, but for unpaid parking fines. Right? <laughs> Just they got him somehow, but they got him but for 10 days. And on his way out of the door, he, he told us this later, he saw his mum's big Greek Orthodox Bible. Hmm. And he felt compelled to take it with him. So he popped this thing under his arm, and it must have weighed 10 pounds. I mean, it was a big Bible. And um, took it to, to read while he was in the cell. And he literally said what happened was he opened up the Scriptures, um, we started reading some of the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit fell on him right there in the prison cell. I mean, it was just one of those miracles where God just intervenes in a person's life. And um, he came out of that prison a different, a different guy, talked to his brother. His brother, you know, also came to know the Lord. And so these two, they were, they were Greek brothers. We used to call them the wild Greek brothers because they were pretty wild. And um, so they, they decided that what they were going to do is going to write a list um, of all the people that they sold drugs to and all their friends and all the rest of it. And they were going to pray their way through this list. So they began to do that and they would tick it off when people would come to know the Lord. So I was on that list as was my sister and a bunch of others. And um, so they uh, contacted us. So this was our time. We didn't know, but they contacted us and said to, to meet if we, they, they wanted to catch up for lunch. So we said, okay, when we were keen to find out what was going on in their lives. Well, the night before um, we went for, uh, for lunch with them, we – my sister and I had gone out to a, a gay club till six in the morning um, and we'd taken LSD trips. And we left the club at six in the morning thinking, oh, could we get back? Can we have a sleep before we go, uh, you know, to, to meet the guys? And anyway, we get back to our apartment and, um, you know, we're starting to come down from this LSD and decide we're going to have a little sleep. And there was ev everything within us was like, oh, we're going to cancel, we're going to cancel. But there was this other thing saying, no, we can't. We need to go. So I don't even remember if we – I don't think we got to sleep. <laughs> we ended up driving because they were quite far away. We ended up driving like we've got to go. We've got to go and meet with them because I'll be so disappointed if we stop, if we cancel. Anyway, so we're driving down the road. My sister is driving and she is literally seeing – well, not literally, but in her mind, literally seeing pink elephants bouncing across the road. And she's like, I can't drive these pink elephants. And I'm like, there's no elephants. Keep your hand on the steering wheel. Anyway, we managed to get there. That in itself was a miracle. And um, we went out to this beautiful park area and I remember seeing George pulls out a Bible. I remember going to touch it, to you know, and, and I pulled my hand back and he said to me, it's not going to bite you, Debbie. And I was like, okay, and I thought, oh, so it's got something, I was thinking it's got something to do with the Bible, where they're at now. Yeah. So anyway, for the rest of that lunch, they began to share with us about the Lord. And um, we asked questions, you know, again, we were, we're getting tired by this stage because yeah. we hadn't really slept and we're kind of coming down, so it was all a bit trippy. Um, but we went home that night. My sister and I, and I didn't know, the same thing happened with her, but I, I was in my bed and I remember saying, Jesus, if you are real, come into my life. Jesus, if you are real, come into my life. Now, I said this probably a dozen times 
I don't know if I was expecting to experience something. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Um, But I just knew if this was true, what they'd been telling us, and this is what I wanted. So um, went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and I I knew something was different. I knew I had found my answer. I, again, was not sure what that all meant, um, but I immediately resonated with this This is it. Hmm. What I've been feeling for these last few weeks, this, this sense of drawing, mm-hmm. um, this, this is what it is. And um, that was the beginning, really, mm-hmm. of my journey and my sister's journey. We had just the next week we're moving into a big community house uh, in, in the downtown area of our city, and um, so God, God was at work. I mean, it was, the timing was just perfect because we moved in with a bunch of other people and so we began to share with them and John and George would come over and so this community started building around, around Jesus. Now, the interesting thing was we weren't going to a church. Hmm. Um, we, we didn't have a church because George had become a believer in, in prison so I say to people, we could have ended up being some weird cult, I'm telling you now. <laughs> but, again, we did not. So um, one night my sister and, and my cousin Mark, um, who was – Mark was a gay man. I, I talk about him in my book. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my sister and Mark are, is the, one, are the ones that I dedicated the book to. Huh. Um Mark and my sister went for a walk because we were sitting there thinking, you know, we probably should find a church. You know, I guess we're Christians. <laughs> it means Christians go to church. We should look for a church. So they went for a walk down one of the main uh, streets just, just around from our house and they saw this big old church and it just had a sign, Christian Chapel, mm-hmm. on it. And they saw a light on it, the side, so they went and knocked knocked on the door at the side and um, the pastor whose name was Pat, opened up the door and said, hello, and they said, oh, you're not Mormons, are you? He said, no, 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 we're Christians. And he, he said, we're having a prayer meeting. Would you like to join us? And they were all a bit nervous. Oh, no, 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 but, you know, are you meeting on Sunday? And he said, yes, and they said, we would love to come along and bring some of our friends. So they came back, and by this time, this is, you know, this is a few months in, you know, we had a bunch of people living in this house, and the house at, at this stage was... I mean, it was pretty chaotic and pretty crazy. And when I look back, I think it really was like almost a clash of the kingdoms going on hmm. within the house because there were some people that were like, you know, full on following God and reading the Bible and other people were like really anti. You know, so there was kind of, hmm. you know, we'd all moved in together and this was going to be, you know, the party house of Melbourne <laughs> you, know, <laughs> in our, you know, in our minds. But yet some of us became believers and we were like, we're not sure. <laughs> we want to keep doing this this and doing that and so there's a little bit of a war going on within the walls of the house and you know at any given day you'd have bible bible teaching or bible reading going on in one room and drug dealing going on in another so it was really quite (laughs) a chaotic you know sitting and um anyway so probably i don't know a dozen of us rolled into church and on that sunday and and we we went up the stairs and went in and there's you know like a big uh, aisle in the middle of the church and I mean it was just a beautiful old church it had a big God is love sign and one of those big giant kind of ancient organs <laughs> there was there was not no other music but organ music going on in that church at that point and um as we walked down the aisle we were looking at people and we were keen 
you know, we wanted to learn. We were like filled with God's spirit and we mm. wanted to learn everything we could. So we wanted to, you know, we didn't think, you know, we headed straight for the front pews. <laughs> so we're walking down the down the aisle and we're looking at all these people and there was little old ladies with hats and hats and gloves on their hands and men were dressed in suits and, you know, we discovered that the youth group were in their 60s. <laughs> so we didn't know it at the time, but we had walked into a fundamentalist church oh, of Christ. Wow. wow. It, was, it was quite And you guys, I'm, I'm picturing, well, first of all, how old are you at this stage? And I'm, I'm just picturing a bunch of kind of like Jesus freak looking post-hippie people coming into this church. Is that a good picture I have in my mind? or? Well, not quite post-hippie. We were kind of more goth, new romantic, oh, okay. oh. you know, with a punk punk flavor. Okay, okay. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, you better. know, we kind of made an art of looking weird, you know. <laughs> you know those seasons you yeah. go through when you're conforming and you're non-conformity. Anyway, so... We didn't, we didn't look normal, Preston, is the answer to okay. that. So these people were looking at us like wondering what planet has just invaded. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I had black hair that stood up and black lipstick that, you you know, you've already mentioned. And, um, you know, I, I think I had my pyjama top on and, you know, we used to tie rags to our body. I mean, we just didn't look normal. I just... You know, which just heightens the miracle of what happened in that church, to be honest with you, because um, it was quite remarkable. Um, anyway, that, that little fundamentalist Church of Christ became our home. Wow. And it was those people that discipled us. And um, they did not, I like to say this to people, they, did, they had no clue what to do with us. We were culturally, we were from world, different worlds, but they knew how to love. And they knew how to pray. And they prayed like crazy for us. Hmm. And um, some of them, I remember uh, a man named Alan Thomas who had those shiny Jesus eyes. Him and his wife embraced us, took us home for lunch and opened up their big Schofield Bibles you know, <laughs> and read to us from the scriptures. And they took a risk on us. You know, again, they didn't really understand us, but they knew God was at work. And um, the, the the beautiful thing about it is Pat Pat the pastor he was a, a incredible model of grace incredible model he would come every I think it was Wednesday mornings to our home and sit there open up his Bible and teach whoever wanted to learn would sit around the Bible again there'd be drug dealing going on wow. in the front lounge there'd be men in bed with men upstairs I mean it was it was chaotic it was crazy and Pat would come in his little suit. And he had a grey comb over his glasses and he would sit there. Like, I mean, it was just incredible. And, and he just loved and he taught. Hmm. And um, But he would tell us years later that some of the older people struggled with us, you know, and they'd be, you know, at board meetings and that, they'd start complaining about us. You know, you've got a time they've got to dress better and, you know, they shouldn't be smoking outside the church and, <laughs> you know, what's, what's with all the different hair colours, you know, all that stuff that we get so caught up about, you know. Yeah. And um, he said um, one night in, a, in one of the board meetings, Alan Thomas on with the Jesus eyes, when the, the, one of the people were complaining, he said he pushed his chair and he stood up. He pushed his chair back and stood up and he said, no, not the lambs. Don't touch the lambs. And that's the type of protection we got from some of these people. Mm. And, um, and then Pat, Pat told us when people would complain, he would say to them, do you know what? 
and this is the miracle part of it, that Wednesday night prayer meeting that my sister and Mark, you know, knocked on the door when we found the church, that was set up for one sole reason, that they would pray that the Lord would bring young people into their church. And so Pat would say to the people that would complain about us, it's not my fault you weren't specific enough with God about the type of young people you wanted. <laughs> we wanted some clean-cut young people that didn't They're have clean black lipstick. living people. Uh, give me some clean ones. I, I have a – so I would I, – I want to go back to something. I mean you mentioned meeting yeah. Jesus while in LSD. I, I That's not a unique story, at least in my anecdote. I've, yeah. I, I've talked to a lot of people – and in the broader culture today, there, I mean, there's a big conversation happening around spirituality and psychedelics. Yes. And um, a good friend of mine, Paul uh, Vanderclay, who's he does you know podcasts, YouTube, he's a pastor and everything. Um, and he's 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 one of these. I don't, do you know the name Paul Vanderclay? Probably he's not that well known, but um, he no, gets I around. Don't, I don't know. Yeah, um, you probably you probably wouldn't. I mean, he's got a, you know a decent sized kind of YouTube following, and he he. A lot of the people he that follow him are not Christians. They're kind of seekers. He loves to have right. just intellectual conversations about anything. Anybody's kind of welcome to come chat. And he's built this kind of like really eclectic following. And he's got a really good eye for the f- like just future. Like where's Christianity going? Where's culture going? Really sharp guy. And I sat down with him a month ago. To, no, I guess two or three months ago. And I said, hey, what's kind of the big thing that Christians need to start thinking about now? Like what's what's something that – we don't realize it's going to be a huge topic. And he immediately hands down without hesitation said Christianity and psychedelics. I'm like, really? Is that like a, he's like, this is in my circles, which is kind of the, like, this is the question that people are asking. Like, um, it, anyway, I, I don't even know what my, well, I guess my question is because the, the knee jerk reaction is, you know, no, this is horrible. This is bad and everything. And that's, that's my knee jerk reaction. But I'm always want to say, well, let, let me, th- yeah. I want to think through something before I even have an opinion about it. And yeah. I just have never really thought through it. Do you have like, what, why, why does it seem that God yeah. does seem to use psychedelics to bring people to himself? Like, what is that? How are we supposed to process that? I think that's a, a really good question, um, and I have been uh, keeping up with a little bit of some of that. Um, and I don't know if this is the same guy, but you know, one of the guys that used to be involved in Triple X Church oh. is that the same guy you're talking no, about? No, no, it's not. I know. I've just read an article. Yeah. Oh, I read an article recently about a guy who's um, a Christian guy who is, you know, uh, not as much psychedelics, but marijuana. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at marijuana, uh, marijuana use. I think it was. I don't even know. Was it in Christianity Today? It doesn't seem like it would be in Christianity Today, but maybe. Yeah. Um, I read an article, and I think there is There's a lot more conversation around it. And I think, look, we would be foolish to say that God does not use sure. that. It, it's. I can't even tell you how many of my friends have also been opened really? up spiritually uh, through drug taking. You know, is a whole other question of whether, you know, do Christians continue to use that, yes. you know, and, and I guess the, the article that I was reading from this guy was saying that it has enhanced his prayer life, that it's opened him up to God in a much bigger way than he could have ever understood. Um, and I think, you know, look, I, I just think we've, I think, of course, with everything there has to be caution, Mm-hmm. But I think there's also, there's been, you know, four years of a lot of negativity around. And I'm, again, psychedelics and marijuana are two different beasts in my, in my mind. Okay, yeah. Um, 
But I do think, you know, if you look back through different religions, there has always been some element of that, you know, even in the Jewish faith, um, in some of the more mystical uh, mm. areas of the Jewish faith, um, people were known to have, you know, been using marijuana or something to enhance their spiritual encounter with God. Yes. So I think, you know, I just think we, you know, we, we if, if you looked on the, on the page of all the harm marijuana does and all the harm alcohol does, for instance. Right. You know, I'm probably going to say alcohol does more harm. <laughs> yeah. know, this is marijuana tends to be more of a peace drug, um, and yet Christians drink marijuana, uh, drink alcohol. So I, I, I just think culturally, you know, there's like a naysaying, no, no, and especially in Christian culture, um, you know, I mean, the church I was leading in in Los Angeles, it was kind of birthed in some ways. Um, a very close association with the Burning Man community. Um, you know, so we were around, there was a lot of people, you know, even people on my team that were, you know, using different drugs at times. Now, again, stepping into that context was was kind of interesting for me because I was like, whoa, this is not, not the norm, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not one to judge or, you know, make any judgments on anything like that, but I just think, um, it's definitely starting to move. There's, you know, I'm, I hear of believers that are, you mm-hmm. know, using marijuana to enhance their prayer life and that. Mm. So I understand, you know, the other argument is, well, it'll open you up to everything else and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know that that's always true. That's <laughs> you know? I don't like that argument. I don't know. But I, I'm not going to say there's not something no. there, but I, I don't, we don't, we don't reason like that through, well, like you said, alcohol or, or, um, making a lot of money or, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that in excess becomes really bad or could become addictive or could lead to this. And we do it all the time. I mean, we, we don't, we kind of pick and choose where we want to use that argument. Yeah. The the marijuana, and I I just have not thought through this. I might just, I still rely on my knee jerk, like no bad, don't get drunk with wine. I'm sure that applies to being high too, but I, but is marijuana kind of, is it the new kind of craft beer? I mean, 30 years ago, you were really edgy as kind of an outsider if, like, you had an elder meeting and, you know, you went to a pub or something, at least in, at least in the States. I mean, um, but mm-hmm. now it's like – I remember when I I remember when I moved up here to Boise, Idaho, where I'm at. Boise, Idaho is a very conservative uh, city. Uh, the churches are very conservative. And I came up here eight years ago to try to start a, uh, an extension campus of a Bible college. So I was meeting with pastors all the time. And I can't tell you the overwhelming majority wanted to – meet over a beer, not a cup of coffee. I'm like, and this is like, a, they're like Baptist and, you know, not so much Methodist, yeah. but I mean, I was like, wow. So it's, it's like totally accepted. Like it's not a big deal anymore in 20 years or even 10 years. Are we going to say the same thing about marijuana? This is what my friends who are pastoring in, you know, on the coast, you know, Oregon and California and East coast, they're kind of yeah. like, yeah, I'm sure tr- we're having, like, this is something like we're trying to figure out, okay, half my elders are, you know, use yeah. marijuana on some level. It's just not that, big of a deal. Yep. It's legal. You know, I don't know. So I, it's a conversation we need to have, I think, right? Are people having the conversation? I oh, mean, we definitely need, definitely need to have it. And I think we definitely need to have it. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's interesting that it's coming out at the moment, you know, and it, there, it is being talked about a lot more. Um, again, I just, for me, we've got to take this down. You don't judge, you know, mm-hmm. be, be wise about all things. You know, Paul Paul says that. Don't be, 
don't be addicted to anything or, you know, that, that anything ha- have mastery over you. Right. I just think, look. Except for yeah. coffee. That's it's co- a- <laughs> coffee gets a free <laughs> But, you know, and, and it, you know, I, I have a cousin who there's no question that, you know, his psychosis was, you know, his, his schizophrenic, you know, was induced, you know, through too much marijuana. So, you know, okay. there's all of that kind of stuff. And we've got to, We've got to look at the whole big picture, I think, and and be very careful. But yes, I passed it on, you know, in California, and it was people were like, "It's not such a big deal. It's not illegal, yeah. isn't it? That it's illegal that we don't do it, you know?" So, yeah, the church is changing in lots of ways, isn't it? Well, and, and even like not just medicinal, but even people that say, "Yeah, I, I take a couple of gummies, you know, a couple nights a week, helps me go yeah. to sleep." How is that different? If it's if it's if there's no health risk, in fact, if it's if there's health benefits, and I, again, I, I'm not these are questions yeah. I, I know nothing yeah. about this conversation. Um, but how is that different than people taking a couple Tylenol PMs, which happens a lot, which can become addictive or or Vicodin or yeah. you know, like I I don't know. Um, well, I that's just, the I, argument, I isn't it? Yeah, but with you said it's marijuana is a lot different than psychedelics. I I, I smoked some pot years ago. Um, teen like late teens maybe um never done psychedelic so um you that you're, you would say these, these are two kind of really different conversations i mean maybe the large umbrella is the same but i mean yeah. th- these are not you can be almost for marijuana use and still be very against psychedelics you would say well i just think they did well you know from my experience uh yeah, psychedelics, I think, you know, and look, people, I wasn't really into psychedelics, you know, it wasn't something I did all the time, partly because I, I felt a little bit out of control in them. Mm. You know, you, you can enter into a whole other realm, <laughs> whereas, you know, and I took a lot of uppers, you know, mm-hmm. I felt more control, but also marijuana was a much more chilled, I yeah. don't know, I definitely think they're, di- they're different drugs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if uh, I'm just trying to think, I, I like to always think through something from all angles. Like if someone says, well, no, God seems to keep using uh, psychedelics to draw people to himself. On what grounds can we say um, that's only to draw them to himself initially, not in an ongoing way? If he can use it initially, yeah. could he not that. use it ongoing? And I do like to make the distinction between this is this is a way God wants us to pursue him versus this is a bad yeah. human decision that I'm so sovereign and loving. Sure. I'll, I will, um, you know, God used Assyria to carry out his covenant promises to punish Israel. Doesn't mean everything Assyria was doing was like yeah. <laughs> sanitize or like, you know, the yeah. God's like, yeah, way to go. You know? So, yeah. um, I don't know. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. I think uh, we need to start. I don't have through. answers either, Kristen. <laughs> I don't know. I just know, you know, again, being in some of the ministries I've been involved in, I have seen God use that to bring people to himself. There's no question. Yeah. Whether then we then go on, like you said, and keep using mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, that's that's the conversation that's being brought up at the moment. I don't have answers yeah. to any of that. I kind of want to see some yeah. pink elephants, though. Oh, Lord. people are gonna think i'm like i'm i am not but if you listen to the podcast you know i'm not like trying to smuggle this in at all i'm just it's whenever there's a, whenever there's a topic christians haven't really taken a time to really think through everything i, I want to yeah stir up that kind of conversation well let, let's get back and to your good. yeah good. yeah back to your story so um 
you, uh, I guess one one of the areas that I love that grew out of your story is, um, I mean, I guess this applies to you and Alan, just, just your, your view of church. Like, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? And, and, um, as I've kind of paid attention to kind of your ecclesiological reflection, just, you guys seem to cultivate such a really rich, authentic sense of belonging. Um, this, and it seems that, I don't know, like when you first became a Christian in this kind of house and in this community, can you talk us through that? Like, like if, if someone were to ask you like church, like what, what, is, what does it mean to be the church? And it was just like, all right, Deb, go like lay, lay out your ecclesiology when you think of church and, and what it means to be the people of God. What does that look like to you? Well, it's, you know, I, well, I write about this in the, you know, actually in the book I wrote with Untamed, uh, Untamed with Al and, and also in Redeeming uh, Sex, it, it's a community that's centred around Jesus. And I think, um, you know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, so many of our churches are in what we call a, a bounded set model. You know, people that are in are in and people that are out are out and the lines are clearly, you know, <laughs> drawn up the insiders and the outsiders, and there are certain expectations of insiders and job of the insiders is to go out and grab those outsiders and get them back in and get them all cleaned up, believing and behaving in right ways, and then they get to belong to us, you know. Um, whereas I think what we've, I guess because of our own lives of, you know, uh, you know, both of us were converted from non-Christian backgrounds. We didn't really, my husband was from a Jewish family, you know, so no kind of concept of the church and the way the church does things, um, you know, until you go, you know, you go off to seminary and then they train you of how you've got to do things and all the rest of it. But, but the, it, you know, we very quickly get into this bounded set, you know, whereas I think our lives were lived in it around a centred set, you know, Jesus at the centre mm-hmm. and all have access. You don't have to be an insider to have access to Jesus. You know, we, we tie him up in stained glass <laughs> buildings, stained glass window buildings, um, so, so for us, it's always been about, you know, we, we encountered Jesus in the strange places, you know, and he wants, you know, we've, we've got to give people access to him. We don't, you know, bind him up, mm-hmm. um, and make him inaccessible. And I think as a church, we do that. Um, we're, we're terrible at that. And I think for us, belonging was, you know, very important. You know, if you have, you, you know, if you believe the right things and you behave in the right ways, then you get to belong. Well, we kind of reverse that. You know, it's come belong, come hang out, you know, be live your life not behind the walls, you know, dig a well of Jesus, you know, and, and people are going to want that water to drink. You know, I drank from it. It gave me life. It changed my life incredibly. Mm. Um, you know, it, it can, you know, <laughs> coming to Jesus is, See, it, it's just a, it's a wild ride, isn't it? It's just a crazy thing. And then we, we too easily begin to then domesticate him and keep him locked inside the church. And so for us, it's like, no, he's got to be, he's got to be freed from the church. And so, so we do try to set up, you know, the churches that we've, uh, that we led in Melbourne and the one that I was leading in Los Angeles was very much around a centered set approach. Um, Jesus at the center and, you know, we don't put walls Mm-hmm. you know, and he's accessible for wherever because, you know, again, if you're thinking back to provenient grace, if God is at work, you know, I mean, our our job, our, our 
overarching biblical mandate really is to point people to Jesus, help mm-hmm. them get closer to the center, mm-hmm. the center of all reality. Right? Yeah. That's our job, is it not? Um, and so I think for us, you know, a lot of frustration has been in the way churches structure themselves. Um, we, we, we are really good at making non-essentials essential, <laughs> you know, so I think that's, that's always a pet peeve of mine, you know. Like, you're missing the big picture here. You're getting all caught up in the semantics and the this and that. And so I don't know, Preston. I mean, we, we probably have lived a lot of our life a little bit more on the edge, mm-hmm. you know, of the you know, of the church world, even though we're right in the midst of the church world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and certainly my husband felt, you know, strongly, strongly called to the church and to serve the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so we've been at the centre but also at the edges, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the missionary heart, I think. And when you when you have a missionary heart, uh, you... you you want the lost to be able to meet Jesus, and when you're when you're kind of in the middle of the church, you realise how sometimes, and I'm going to say this kind of in a sense of deep sadness, but how far we are from doing that. You know, I mean, in all my travelling around, I mean, it it has staggered me how many how many Christians don't even know a non-Christian. Hmm. You know, it's like they don't even know their neighbours, and it's like they've they've lost the Great Commission. They've lost the passion to share the love that they've got, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that's just sad. Hmm. Um, and then we make all all we make it all about rules and regulations rather than this kind of dynamic relationship mm-hmm. uh, with the person of Jesus. And and I think we yeah we move into the non-essentials and forget the essentials, and yeah. and we just lose something. We we lose something tangible about the kingdom and the life of the kingdom and. Yeah. You know, it's there. I want to live in that, don't you? I mean, yeah. we, that, yeah. that's where it's at. And I just think, I think, I say, Christians spend too much time in church and with other Christians. <laughs> you know, yeah. we've got to get out there. You know, I mean, we've just, you know, right back in New York City and I'm walking around overwhelmed with the lostness of this place. Mm. You know, and everyone's rushing. No one's looking at each other. Mm. It's just, it's chaotic. It's loud. You can't hear anything. And you just, the, the lostness, you know, and I mean, and there are some wonderful churches here wanting to reach this culture, you know, but I just, I think we forget about it. We've got to get out a little bit more, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and let the pain of the world kind of get into us. And that propels us to to kind mm-hmm. of not want to just play church, but to be the church, you know. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I just think we've we've lost some of our original fire sometimes. Yeah. We've become domesticated, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I'm raving. <laughs> no, it's so good. This is, <laughs> and this is another area I feel like I've been just kind of thinking out loud through. I mean, I personally resonate so much with that kind of vision. Just, just more. I don't know. Like, I just uh, even if I wasn't a Christian, like that kind of like just messy gathering, just focus on belonging, mm-hmm. focus on relationships. And obviously, as a Christian, keep Jesus at the center of that. Yeah. But I, I also, you know, work with a lot of churches that have, you know, they do have structures and policies. And and the biggest question I get is, so so uh, real quick, I want to come back b- before I ask my question. 
So yeah, a lot of churches believe, behave, belong, like, and that's the order of things, right? And you say you flipped it. So yeah. you, you would say belong, believe, behave, something like that. I mean, again, even wording it like that just feels mechanical, but belonging it is... It does. But okay. I would say belonging and belonging, when, when people begin to belong to you, you know, when you open your arms and you lead with embrace, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, everyone wants to be known and wants to be loved, yeah. right? So belonging, don't be fearful of bringing you know, non-believers into your family and into your homes, you know, yeah. and that's another thing where our homes are structured around, you know, constructs of, you know, um, nuclear family, you know, it's, we're not living a biblical family either, you know, but our home should be the most place where of welcome, you know, our table. You know, often used to say who we have around our table says a lot about the Jesus we follow, you know. And so I think the tables are sacred places and, you know, help people to belong. And then they begin to, like, gosh, they begin, they do, they begin to believe in the same things you believe in, into, you know, they're, they're being drawn into something. Um, and then instead of behave, um, and somebody somebody said this to me that in their church they, they took the belonging, believing, and then becoming. Yeah, that's and I thought than that's really yeah. good. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. Really yeah. good because we're so scripted on the behaviours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we want to get. We like neat and tidy people, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so here's my question: Is and, and I'm talking more specifically like a, a, a church context that, that is following a more, you know, belonging first model. Are there any discipleship expectations placed on somebody who says, sure. I'm not just a guest at your table. I want to be part of your family. Because for us, like I, and I, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to retweet that phrase you just said, I'll give you credit because that's a brilliant phrase. <laughs> who you have around your table says a lot about the Jesus you follow. I think that's brilliant. Um, but if so, if somebody comes as a guest in my house, they're going to get mm -hmm. served like crazy. And there's no requirements. Yeah. I mean, you have to leave your psychedelics at the door. They can bring them inside. Just don't smoke them in my house. Okay. But I, I'm not going to say, no, you need to quit <laughs> doing drugs before you come to the table. It's like, no, you don't. I'm not going to. But if they said, hey, I want to stay. I want to be part of your family. Now they're moving from guest mm -hmm. to family. I'm like, okay, but. Yeah. Our family does have sort of, and I, let's 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 ditch the language of rules, regulate. We do have fam a family identity um, where we are pursuing a certain kind of becoming because we want to become like the Jesus. Where, yeah. and that does end up coming around to there are certain behavioral expectations. I, I hate even saying it like that, but like. Yeah, you got to leave your racism at the door. I mean, I'll have a racist at my table any day of the week. But you start telling racist jokes, and, and if you want to belong to the family, we got to weed that out, dude. Um, call yeah. to rule, call to regulate. So oh. is that a weird tension? Yes. Like, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, sure. And in a church context, so, um, you know, so just thinking of, of like Tribe, the church that um, I was leading in, in Los Angeles. Um, so we would say – you know, come and belong, but we would talk about people in like, so, you know, we're governed by the Great Commission, right? Mm -hmm. Go, therefore, and make disciples, okay? Now, we've in many ways turned that into an evangelistic text, right? Mm -hmm. But it's actually a discipleship text. Mm -hmm. That's a conversation. 
But if we just look at we're here to, to make disciples of Jesus. So we develop two categories, pre-conversion discipleship and then post-conversion discipleship. Okay. So in the pre-conversion discipleship, we talk about something that so we one of our things that we used to talk about it as missionaries, one of the one of the first paradigms that needs to shift is that we don't see people first and foremost as sinners in need of redemption. Yes, of course they're that. We know that, but that's a church scripting. Look at everybody, they're sinners and we need to kind of get them out of their behavior. Again, it gets behavioral focused again, right? Mm-hmm. We would say, actually, the more fundamental truth is that people are creating the image of God. Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3. And let me tell you, when you when you begin to script people and help them to see the truth of that, it changes everything in the way you relate to those that you might deem sinners. All of a sudden it's like, you know, because if, if they're sinners first and in need of redemption, you kind of you, you focus on their behavior and what they're doing wrong, mm-hmm. okay? But if they're people made in the image of God, so your, your behavior goes from one of, oh, I want to keep a little bit of distance from you because you might be doing things that offend me or I'm not comfortable with. All of a sudden it's like I take a step into a relationship because this person somehow in some way images my God. Yeah. So I want to try and discover that. So I become more curious about that person. Hmm. So so we teaching them that. So the so pre-conversion discipleship looks like cultivating the Imago Day in somebody, not focusing on their sins and you know, wagging the finger and clucking the tongue, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because we're good moralists here, and we're good moral people, and you've got to, you know, it's about, wow. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, your neighbour could be the holiest person that presents, you know, the holiest thing there. You know, see people in a different way. It's a, it's much easier then to help them to belong. So our pre-conversion discipleship is cultivating and calling forth the Imago Dei in people, mm. restoring their dignity if it's been damaged and broken, just loving on them, um, calling forth the good, not pick, pulling, you know, picking out the bad all the time. And this is why we've got such a bad image in the world. This is one of the terrible things we do all the time is we cluck our tongues and point our fingers and make people feel horrible and bad. You know, you're going to hell because you're a dirty sinner, you know, rather than, you are creating the image of an incredible God. Hmm. You know, yes, you're lost and all the rest of it, but that comes secondary. Hmm. You know, so so pre-conversion discipleship is about bringing out the best in people and loving on them and, and calling that forth, the image of God. And then when they've, you know, crossed the line, we don't even like to say <laughs> cross the line because for me my conversion was very evident. I yeah. was lost and then I was found. But for a lot of people it's a journey. Yeah. The journey towards the centre, you know, they're wandering towards the centre. Um, so that can be a you know a long journey of, of of having somebody alongside you and belonging and all the rest. But then when they name the name of Jesus, and we know this is they want to be part of the family now. They don't want to just hang around at the table, just like you're saying. They want to be part of the family. Well, then we talk about discipleship, as in the Imago Christi. Now it's time to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now that's that's a much more intentional discipleship. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where accountability comes into play. That's where we are calling each other mm. to look more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that has requirements, does it not? Yeah. You know, yeah. but again, it's the Holy Spirit's job in this, you know, to sanctify people. 
but we guide them and we t- we teach them the truths and we you know so that's mm. much more intentional discipleship. Does that I make think, sense? Yeah, yeah, that absolutely does. And I think that it, the wording really does matter. Um, like if we talk, I, I, Amago Christi, I love that, and or you can even you can even use that creational language. Like we want. We want image of God bearers to live a flourishing life in line with how the creator has designed us to, to live, which might include suffering and hardship and self-denial. But, so much. And it, yeah, if you, you word it like that, it just, it just puts a different slant on things. You could say rules and regulations, cause that, but that, 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 that just seems so – when you say rules and regulations, do this, don't do that, it just becomes morality divorced from creation and resurrection. And it just kind of loses touch with the, the beautiful biblical story that – Yes, there are rules and regulations, but I think we've we've tried to promote that in a disconnected moralistic way. So so the rule might be the same, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife is don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. But when you connect that to a broader vision of, you know, cuz the your creator uh designed the world that that will not lead to your own happiness. It will lead to destruction. It will lead to chaos. Um, and we're a community that's pursuing not chaos, you know, we're, we're pursuing, um, I don't know. I, I, and I don't think it's just semantics. I do think it's just how we envision what discipleship even is. Um, so in, yeah, in in a, um, cause you've pastored before, uh, what is like, say you're at a church and you're leading a church of like a thousand people that, does it end up coming kind of full circle to a membership policy and here's this document and you have to sign? Like, how, how do you, cause this is where I love the grassroots messiness of it, but you know, I've been a part of small churches, big churches, house churches, whatever. And, and when you get bigger and you get organized, just that rubber band effect, you start snapping back into kind of like, all right, we're back yeah. to square one again with all these policies and documents. And is that just yeah. inevitable or is there a way to, go about a more authentic form where you don't have to be so scripted? Well, of course, it's easier in smaller, more missional community. And, you know, I mean, all the thing of micro churches, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the new word for that at the moment. Um, but I think, I think there are ways. I mean, in some ways it is inevitable that, you know, you have a bounded, you know, we used to talk about our leadership, our core leadership team as, you know, guardians of the well, you know, we want people to drink from the well, but you know, so so we, you know, we'd have like a, in a sense a bounded set at the at the middle guarding the well, and then we'd have our covenant community, which was a broader. They're the people, the Imago Christi people, okay. and then beyond that is 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 you know people that are drawn. You know, God is drawing, and yeah. you know we're trying to cultivate the Imago Day and all that kind of stuff. So I think the bigger the church is, yeah, it's clumsy. You know, and structures. Yeah do end up kind of coming in there. And I think in some ways it's unavoidable. But I think if we're always out on the mission field, you know, you know, we're bringing them back into churches, if you like. Well, we're actually, you know, from a more going out and planning churches that are out there that are small and a little bit more, ad, you know, agile and adaptable and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's many ways of doing it. And I don't want to you know, uh, say big church is not right or, you know, small church is the only way to go because I think, you know, I think there's both and there can be good. Yeah. Do, you, you do, you, do you recommend? I, I appreciate that, you know, you, you don't, yeah, there's not one size fits all kind of size of the church or yeah. whatever, but do you, do you prefer or even recommend 
smaller communities of churches? Like if a church kept growing and growing, would you say, for man, sure. reproduce, go plant another church, don't just keep oh, adding services? For sure. or for sure. Yeah. 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 I think the bigger the structure, the more complications. I mean, at the moment we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, some of the lack of accountability and, you know, personality-driven kind of churches yeah. that in big big contexts. I think, I think God's saying to us, hey, work on your structures a little bit better here because – you're setting people up for, you know, yeah, yeah. for there are problems with the structures as, as they are. So I think we've always been more smaller church people ourselves. Our communities are being smaller um, and, again, more mission-based, you know. So there's, there's, there's not a big distance between what's going on out here in the mission field and what's going on here. You know, there kind of is a lot of flow between rather than, yeah. you know, mission stays out in the mission field and then you go to church when it's all, you're all tidied up. You know, that's a yeah. lot more kind of can, can blending you, can, and merging. And it is it is messy. Can you describe that in concrete terms? Like what is that what does that look like? Can you give us an example of what that looks like? Rather than having a compartmentalized here's our well, church, here's mission, but like blurring the two more? Like what does that look like on Tuesday afternoon well, or <laughs> Well, yeah, well I think it's people on life together. You know, so it's a, it's a there's a vital community living that's not just happening on a Sunday. The Sunday should be the gathering of what we've been doing and the stories that we tell of mission through the week and all the rest of it, whereas that's not what the church usually is on a Sunday. It's God's people coming are exhausted and, you know, we should, I don't know, look, yeah. I don't want to say go on too much about that, but I think, I think um, you know, when we, just, when we just set up a church where people are just attending and it's, it's not participation-based, it's spectator-based, um, I think that, that's a huge problem. You know, we're very much priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. In fact, we ordained our, our, you know, our church in Melbourne. We stood them all up and put those silly little white dog collars on each of them and ordained them all, you know. <laughs> really? <laughs> we seriously did. You put a collar on everybody? white cardboard and got little sticky things and put them all around <laughs> their neck and stood them up and ordained them all. You have to. It's a visual. It's important. And it meant something for people, and they realised it's not just me and Alan, our team, that are those called to be in ministry. We're all in ministry. Some of us might be set apart for more actively involved in the church, you know, in ways that we are and you are, but everybody's on mission no matter what their context yeah. is, you yeah. know. So that is that, hard. To, we don't do that very often. Well, it's hard. It is hard to do in a bigger church, right? Or Have you seen a big church do that well? And if so, what is what are they doing differently? Because I, and the default knee jerk rea- reaction is, well, we have a good small group, com- you know, program or whatever, and I think that can be great, um, or it cannot. I don't know. Like just a- adding small groups does that solve the problem that, that the big church has with well, doing what you're? Well, it depends. Depends what the small groups are. If they're, if they're just for Bible study, I mean, again, I would say have a lot of small missional groups. So they actually have some sort of outward focus. It's not, I mean, it's not bad to sit around and study the Bible and you, we should have them as well. But I think everybody, you know, I think the, the underground in Tampa, I think, is a good example. of. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the church, the gathered church is actually all made up of all these missional groups. You don't just go to church. You're actually part of a missional group and then you go to kind of all come together. So you're gathering, you're gathering the, the group together that are on mission through the week, you know, all the various groups, mm-hmm. and they're a, a great community. Um, so I think we need more like that, you know, yeah. structuring around that type of thing. Um, 
yeah, if you if you if you if you start with mission, you'll end up with community. But if you start with just worrying about the community, you know, you might not ever get around right, the mission. Right, right. You know, so I think it's it's the mission that's got to go. Yeah, you know? yeah. I forgot. Yeah, somebody told me about the underground, and there's um, yeah, there's there's these kind of movements like this kind of all over the place. I keep hearing about the underground, uh, you know, Francis Chan's got his thing in San Francisco. That's similar to that. Um, where, where the core DNA of the you church. You should get Brian on. Yeah. What's his last Sorry. name? Sanders, Brian Sanders. That's right. Okay. There's a, another guy leading it at the moment. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but, um, but certainly Brian, Brian's back in town now. So he's, he, okay. he'd be great. You would love him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah quite remarkable yeah so i would love to hear the pros and because i've seen people try to do stuff like that and 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 there's yeah there's pros and cons that come up um uh, i was on staff at um where francis chan was a pastor when he um we overlapped by a year his oh my word (laughs) is that the cat what was (laughs) i don't i don't know but i i know it's probably not possible to like pause right now is it because my battery is just about to drop out well uh no that's fine but i've actually taken <laughs> you up to an hour and i have another podcast here so we can we can just wrap up you better here. go okay. yeah All yeah right. um you're about to I die i just realized i haven't you're got the back. plug plugged in and it's <laughs> yeah. not here we didn't even get into your book so i do want to give a shout out i'm sure i'll mention it in the uh intro but redeeming sex naked conversations about sexuality and spirituality is a fantastic book um and yeah, would highly encourage people to check that out. But Deb, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, I, I could talk to you for hours. Um, but yeah, thanks for giving me at least one <laughs> one of those hours of your time. <laughs> Great to see you. Okay. God bless. God bless.